Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show. Coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska. Where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Well, welcome everybody to the Must Read Alaska show. I'm your host, John Quick, coming to you live from somewhere in Alaska. And boy, it has snowed a lot over the last couple of days. It has been crazy. Um, and uh, we want to thank everybody that listens, watches, and reads Must Read Alaska. We are so uh, thankful that you do that. And if you want to help keep the lights on here at Must Read Alaska, we're not funded by some dark web nonprofit money conglomerate. We're just funded by everyday folks who care about getting the news out in Alaska. We're funded $5, $10, $100 at a time. You can go to mustreadalaska.com on the right-hand side there. There's a little donate button. Feel free to do that. If you already help keep the lights on here at Must Read Alaska, we want to thank you for doing that. It's it's pretty awesome. We have had a great year this year at Must Read Alaska, especially the Must Read Alaska show. We have been honored to win two major awards by the American Association of Marketing and Communication this year, which is very exciting for us. And currently we're top 200 on iTunes in four countries, including the US, UK, Australia, and Canada. And so that's exciting for us. Suzanne and I are just plugging away here and um, you know, living the dream. So, but without further ado, we have an awesome guest today. I'm gonna introduce you to him for a second and then we're gonna get into it. Pastor Bob is a little bit of an international man of mystery. He is a global peacemaker and we'll hear, we'll talk more about that in a little bit but he also planted a church in texas which happens to be a very large church now probably started in his living room with five people like most folks do and and turns out there's probably thousands of people that go to it now but without further ado welcome to the mustard alaska show pastor bob john i'm excited to be with you i've never been to alaska this is the closest i've come to it and i'm excited <laughs> i love alaska it, it's tough being from Texas, though, because we're the biggest of everything until Alaska. Yeah, you stole it from us. What is that about? We stole it from you. Well, tell folks about a little bit. You know, I, I think it's going to be fascinating for folks to get to hear your story and get to hear the types of people that God's blessed you to be able to be around. So but take us way back. Tell us about where you grew up and what did that look like when you first felt like you were going to plant a church in Texas? I grew up in a little town of a thousand in East Texas. My dad pastored a church, very conservative, very fundamentalist, very rigid. That's just the way it was. And I never dreamed in a million years I'd be doing what I'm doing today. Didn't plan for it, didn't expect it, didn't know it existed. I wanted to be a missionary. And growing up in East Texas, uh, my high school sweetheart, I wanted to marry her, but I told her, I said, until you have a call to be a missionary, there's no way that we can get married. And it was right after that she sensed the call. And so, <laughs> nice. so we, we went to a community college together, then Baylor together, graduated. I went to seminary and we applied to be missionaries, but were rejected three times. Uh, she'd been in some uh, car accidents that cost her the life of her mom, a little baby, and one of her sisters. A uh, little baby they, they had uh, just recently brought home from the hospital. And so they said she'd have to have all these surgeries. So we were never allowed 
to be uh, missionaries because of that with with my tribe. And so it was a hard thing for us. And I never had any desire to start a church. None. I mean, I wanted to be a missionary. I'd do that overseas. But but uh, why, why do I want to start a church in America? But I had a guy call and he was with the Baptist uh, denomination, uh, which is what I was raised in. And she said, he said, Bob, we need more churches in Texas and you need to come start one. And so God began to speak to my heart. And I really didn't know anything about starting a church. My dad went to small churches where I grew up as a little boy in East Texas. He'd grow them large and leave and go to another small church. I didn't know anything about starting a church. And I did it all wrong. I mean, <laughs> I train church planters today because I don't want them to make the same mistakes I made back then. I did not know what I was doing. But God was good, and he blessed it, and it grew. And it turned into not one church, but over 200 churches that we helped start. And uh, we began to work around the world, and and that's where things got real crazy. That's awesome. So somewhere along the lines, you probably were experiencing some success. You probably looked around the room and you thought, well, how the heck did I get 4,000 people in this room? I mean, maybe I should go teach other folks how to do this. So tell me about this kind of ministry, side ministry you created, which is probably what you do full-time now, Glocal. Um, tell us how that, tell me how that started and really what is it, what's the purpose of it? That was the whole point to help pastors not make the same mistakes I did. So there were two or three things that we did. Uh, first of all, I began to realize God blessed all churches. It didn't matter if they were large or small. And I began to study what God was doing around the world. And you may know this, John, but most churches only have 60 or 70 people max. Uh, the, the reality is, if you were to take away the small churches, you've taken away the heart of Christianity. Uh, that's New Testament Christianity, it's early church history Christianity. But in my mind, growing up in Texas, we had to do everything big. So the key <laughs> was grow it as big as you could, you'd reach everybody. But the truth of the matter is, I realized trying to multiply large churches, if that's our primary strategy, we're in trouble. Because by the way, there's only a little over 2,000 churches in America that run over 2,000. So if that's the case in America, and even more so around the world, how do we train people to start churches? And so I begin to uh, study not just how churches are started, but what is the DNA of the church? And we came up with this little acrostic from working around the world. We call it KDSC. And it's the order of the DNA sequence is important. So it all starts with us, K, for the kingdom. D, the disciple. How do we make a disciple? S, the society. What is the role of the church in society? How does it engage the society? And then fourth, C, the church. So what is a church based on the kingdom, making disciples, engaging the society? What does that church look like? And so that's what we begin to teach here in the U.S. and ultimately around the world. And at first, to be very candid with you, John, it was all about how to do church. But I began to realize as we begin to work in Vietnam, and that's a story in and of itself, but that I really didn't know that much about outside of church, how do we bless people that are different than us? And for, for a country boy from East Texas uh, who starts working in Vietnam with communists, that was a big stretch. I, I didn't want to work there. I mean, my dad buried a lot of soldiers during the Vietnam War. And are you kidding? I didn't like communists. In Vietnam, we were at war with them. But here's, here's what I did, John. 
I led an atheist to the Lord who was a medical doctor. And our church was praying about somewhere to focus on and work. And he said, you know, Bob, we dropped a lot of bombs on Vietnam. And he was a, he was an, he was a helicopter pilot, shot down three times, survived all three times in Vietnam, came back, became a very successful surgeon. And he said, we dropped a lot of bombs. We need to drop some Bibles. We need to serve over there. And I said, Let, let's just pray about it because I did not want to go. God had to do some work in my heart. I mean, those verses, love your enemies and all that stuff, that's good until you have to apply them. Until you <laughs> got to do it yourself. I know. <laughs> and so so through some unique circumstances, uh, we adopted Hanoi. And to make matters worse, one of the top leaders of the country, their child, wound up coming to our church as an exchange student. I didn't even want him to come because we were trying to do religious work in Vietnam. But that student came and didn't have to come to church. They were an exchange student, but they did. They wanted to become a Christian. They did. They wanted me to baptize them. Well, I couldn't do it without their parents' permission. And so literally, uh, I got on a plane uh, and flew to Hanoi to meet with their dad, who's one of the top leaders in Vietnam, and say, could I have permission to baptize your child? And uh, I remember them picking me up in a limo at the airplane. This was 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And his first question was, why would any educated man believe in God? You've got a doctor's degree. And he didn't understand, you know, doctorate of theology and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm from East Texas. There's only two reasons why I believe in God. You feel him in your heart and the Bible says so. But that doesn't cut it. If somebody feels Buddha in their heart or nothing in their heart, but God brought to recall those classes I took on philosophical apologetics. And so I went through seven reasons why I believe God exists apart from the Bible. Five reasons why if there is a God, why I'm a monotheist. And four reasons if I'm a monotheist, why I follow Jesus. And he said, man, would you bring that talk and give it to my friends later tonight. <laughs> That's awesome. I know. <laughs> so I did. So I got through and they said, well, would you bring some Bibles and start meeting with us? I said, I can't do that. And they said, why? I said, the government won't let me. They said, well, Bob, we are the government. Yeah, we are the government. We make the rules. <laughs> so it changed everything. And they started saying, hey, we need help with our schools, our medicines, our, all this stuff. So we started mobilizing our members and we have now for over 30 years. And it was a game changer. And so I'm friends with all of them. And they come to our church and thousands of our members have gone and they serve. And we now have another 15 churches that go with us. So that's how we started. That's how that was my intro to communism. That's and awesome. working in a communist country. So for folks that are listening, they're probably like, man, this sounds awesome. Then I think this next part, I think, well, um, I personally think it's awesome, but I think some folks are going to have a hard pill swallowing it because I think, you know, even inside Christianity, we have the, my version of Christianity is the right way. Your version of Christianity sucks. My version of Christianity is awesome. Your version of Christianity isn't awesome. Well, you have this kind of multi-faith network with inside of Glocal, which I just think is fascinating, that works with all these different kinds of faiths, including atheists, as you just talked about. Tell me about what that looks like. Is it super messy? Um, you know, what does it practically look like? It's incredibly messy yeah. and fruitful and exciting. So after 9-11, uh, I'd worked with our State Department with Vietnam. 
And they asked because they had some religious freedom issues. So I began to 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 uh, volunteer and do some of that. So some people said, hey, you need to go to Afghanistan and do there what you've been doing in, in Vietnam. And so we did. And I became friends with all of these imams. And it went over incredible. I was scared to death. I did not want to go to Afghanistan. I was afraid of Muslims. Uh, I like the Jews, but not the Muslims, you know, uh, the way I was raised. And all the wars that I'd seen, zero desire. But I realized, you know, these imams that I'm working with, I, I don't agree with them theologically, but they're nice guys. I mean, they're not what I expected. And so I began to do all this work over there. And from that, uh, this group called the Brookings Institute came to see me and they wanted me to speak at this event. Well, I didn't know what the Brookings Institute was. I figured it's some church planting organization. And, but, you know, they're a think tank for global affairs. And so I said, now, why do you want me to talk? Say, well, we've never heard of a conservative Baptist pastor who's <laughs> friends with communists and Muslims. And we want you to tell that story. So I did. I went to Qatar and I gave that speech. And when it was over, all these imams just and, and Muslim leaders came over and said, we want to get to know you. We want to work with you. And I wound up on a think tank of about 30 world leaders. Some of them are really good people. Some of them are really bad people. But I was the only evangelical they knew. So they asked me, would you be on this think tank? So I go on the think tank. There's 30 of them. First question they asked me, John, what is the rapture? I mean, they wanted to know all about they're that. They're going straight for it. Yeah, they're going, I said, what do you guys know? You're a bunch of Muslims and Jews. What do y'all even know about this? So lo and behold, this, this uh, Saudi prince who I'm close to to this day, one day challenged me. He said, Bob, it's great what you do with Muslims, but you need to work with your church and Muslims in America and start building bridges. I said, your highness, That'd be like you starting a Baptist Sunday school class in Mecca. I don't know it'd go over real good. <laughs> but he said, Bob, you need that's why you need to try it. So I came back. I met an imam. And so and then I met a rabbi. And we had this weekend. This is, gosh, 20 years ago, where, where the church, the mosque, the synagogue all came together. On Friday night, we went to the synagogue. Saturday, we went to the mosque. And Sunday, they all came to the church. I'd never experienced anything like that. People coming in with their kippahs on that were the Jews and the Muslims with the uh, uh, with their hats and the women in their hijabs. And it was incredible. Our people went wild over it. And so we began to work together to build a bridge. Well, the next thing I knew, other cities wanted to be a part of that. And we started doing events and and uh, evangelicals have the most negative view of Muslims in the world. We just do. The only group worse are evangelical pastors. And so we begin to build those bridges. We begin to work together. And about 2015, I met this imam, 2014, uh, January in Nepal. And they were bringing extremist imams out with some of the pastors that they had persecuted. So we had a meeting with them in Kathmandu. And this imam was there from the U.S. Uh, he was friends with Bush and had worked with Bush and Big old guy like me, he's from Sudan, he's, he's African-American, and he had a huge mosque, and we just had a blast together, and so we're, we're sitting at that event, and they're giving him all these white papers, you know, and clerics, we're not scholars for the most part, we're not stupid, but 
we don't need an academic paper to tell us we're screwed up and what we need to do different. So I leaned over and imagined, I said, you know what? This is not going anywhere. He said, I know. He said, what do you think we ought to do? So we started brainstorming between the breaks. We came up with this idea. What if we got pastors and imams together and let them get to know one another for three days? And so we came up with the idea. So we came back to the States. We got, we got 12 pastors, 12 imams from 12 cities. And we took them to a dude ranch here in Texas, horseback riding, fishing, all of it, shooting guns. I mean, the imams, when we started passing the guns, they were scared to death. They said, you're going to get us all thrown in jail. I said, no, don't worry. They said, the FBI is going to show up. I said, look, we're in a shooting range. It's okay. It's, it, it'll be fine. And so one of my men at that time was with the FBI. And he was, he, so I called him. I said, look, they're nervous about this. He just started laughing. He said, I'll come out if you want me to, Bob. It's fine. Well, you know, when they got there, nobody talked to one another. They're all scared of one another. By the third day, they were laughing their guts out, all this kind of stuff. And we made an agreement that the majority, we Christians, would stand up for the Muslims. But we wanted them to stand up for Christians and other parts of the world as well. And so then we went to Qatar. The emir paid for it. And we go to Qatar and we get those same pastors, imams from Pakistan to go. And we took them through the same experience, except we rode camels instead of horses and and once again, it went over huge. On the third day, the emir flew in all of the pastors and imams from Texas or from, de from uh, the U.S. And we got together and we said, how are we going to stand up for one another's minorities? And it just went over huge. And from there, it turned into an organization called Multi-Faith Neighbors Network. Uh, Doug Coe, who did the National Prayer Breakfast in 2017, heard about it. So he wanted me to bring the sheikh. He wanted me to bring a Muslim. And he wanted me to bring a, a, a Jewish person and myself. And there's five main sessions, and we spoke at three of them. So I brought Sheikh Abdullah bin Baya, who wrote something called the America's Declaration. And it's the first document based on the Quran that promotes religious freedom in Islam ever. Well, he's in his 80s. And he's just, he's a revolutionary. There's no other way to put it. And then Jonathan Sachs, uh, a rabbi that just has rocked my world. He's brilliant. And so Doug was literally dying. And he called me right after we got through speaking. He said, I want you to meet me at my office. I'm coming into D.C. He was watching everything on television. And so he gets us all in the room together. And he says, Bob, you got to spread this out. Get the, get the Jewish rabbis involved. Well, immediately the sheikh said, let's do it. So we started something called Caravan of Peace. And we took something like ultimately 20 pastors, 20 imams and 20 rabbis to Abu Dhabi and to Rabat, Morocco. And we came back and we launched it in the cities in the US and it's just exploded. And we're now in 15 countries. I was in Pakistan the first of the year. We did their first retreat with pastors and imams from all over the country. They just had their first retreat without us. They're now going to the top 10 cities and doing it. Wow. Uh, I was in Sudan two weeks ago and we just did their first national retreat. They're gonna do it throughout the country. We're doing it in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. It's just exploded. So that's kind of what's happened. That's pretty cool. I um, uh, I had Doug Burley on the show uh, a couple months oh, ago. Oh, I love Doug Burley. Yep. And uh, he's a friend of mine and and um, got to know him through Young Life. And and um, you that's remind awesome. me, uh, the work you're doing reminds me of 
Um, it's so funny that you said Doug Koch because it reminds me so much of the work that that group does. Um, but you're starting your own thing and you're kind of forging your own path here. Do you do you find um, where do you find the most resistance to this kind of stuff, uh, or does it even phase you or bother you? Just keep plugging along. It bothered me in the early days. If you Google me, you'll find out I'm a Muslim who's a part of member of the Muslim Brotherhood, and <laughs> it's just goofy stuff. I just found out from somebody who wrote a re recent article, I'm a fellow for the World Economic Forum. So I, I don't, I, I, my, my son once told me, he said, Dad, when I get discouraged, I just Google your name. Just and read Google all your name and things. start reading about you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think the shock for me, you got to understand, I'm very conservative. I was raised as a Baptist. Uh, we had an organization where, as a little boy, it was called Royal Ambassadors, right. where the goal was to tell everybody about Jesus. So to be candid with you, the biggest resistance I got was from my own tribe. Yeah. I didn't expect that. I figured they'd be all excited. You know, Bob's building bridges and talking to Jesus about these, uh, you know, communists and Muslims. But, but I found out not everybody gets excited about that. But let me be quick to say, uh, were it not for some of those Bible-believing conservative Christians that have stood with me over the years, it wouldn't be possible. So yeah, there's some that have pushed against me, but there's far more that have supported me and encouraged me and pushed me. Keep Doug Cole was run, Roy Fish, Leighton Ford, Lauren Cunningham. I mean, I could just go on all day long about different people who are there. Keep going. Don't stop. I just saw the Jesus Revolution movie and man, I loved it. And, you know, it's all these hippies coming to Christ. <laughs> well, you know, I dream of, I always tell them they laugh at me, but I want to baptize every Muslim I meet, you know, I mean, I get excited about being in relationships with people that uh, don't have Christian friends. Yeah. So push back there. I get nervous sometimes when I go into other countries, you know, I was just in one where you've got El Shabaab and ISIS and Al Qaeda. So it makes you pray, you know, you, you're, you're wise, but you're careful. Uh, some of the Muslims push back. Uh, but it's open doors. Last year, I spoke in 35 mosques. Wow. I spoke at the largest Muslim gathering in the U.S., 30,000. Yeah, there's 000. not too many conservative Christian pastors that have no. open door ever, all no. over. Yeah. And I don't compromise my faith. I tell them exactly what I believe. You know, I'm just nice about it. I'm not hateful or mean about it. That's all. So do you think some of your secret sauce is, you know, today's day and age, everybody's on this 24-7. Um, the stats are just depressing, you know, TikTok and Facebook and all that. They're just, people are just on their phones all the time. When I hear you talk about, we went in there and we did the work. My guess is you went in there and you, uh, you were building relationships. Um, is there something to be said about just getting off your phone, getting off the tech stuff and going and getting to know somebody for who they are? It's all about the relationships. Uh, we've had some significant foundations that have come beside us. Templeton, Al-Hebri, uh, others. We have governments that uh, we work with, our own government. And uh, people, the, the key, and, and what's interesting for what it's worth, most of our funding is not from Christian sources. It's from foundations who value peacemaking, frankly, more than we do as Christians. Mm -hmm. uh, what we don't understand is that peacemaking opens the door for all those other conversations that we want to have. And it's like they'll come in and they see the results. And so that's why 
uh, people fund us because we have legitimate results, not just the retreats, but we're getting the clerics together. It's all about the relationships. When we start every retreat, that's what we tell them. You're not going to hear lectures. Lecture, you're going to hear three lectures over three days. The lectures are 20 minutes. The rest of the time is facilitated conversation. Because when you get to know someone, it's hard to hate them, hard to kill them. You know, you, you're going, wait, wait, wait a minute. That, that's not right. I mean, I've been in meetings where literally imams have apologized to pastors uh, for going to the governments of the countries they were because they didn't want their churches built and they didn't like Christianity. They've literally apologized for their headaches. I've been in meetings where Christian pastors here in America have asked the imams to forgive them for the hate they felt towards them. So when you get to know, it's easy to dislike somebody you don't know. When you get to know them, uh, man, you are exactly right. It it changes everything. Yeah. So you you do a lot of big impact type stuff. I mean, you're literally all over the globe, uh, forging relationships with folks to hopefully uh, build bridges and create peace. What about you know? There's going to be people that listen to this and think, I can't do what that guy does. That guy's going all over the place, meeting with world leaders. What can somebody that's you know, living in the woods in Alaska, how can they make a difference? Or somebody that's, you know, lives in a city who goes to church once a week, if they're lucky, and has, you know, soccer practices and and PTA and 12 other things and four jobs, how can they make a difference in their community? You can. Uh, one of the things we do with the retreats, the goal really is not the pastor, the imam, or the rabbi. The goal is the people. And so we have five things that they do. First, they go to one another's home for a meal. So they get to know one another. Uh, number two, after they've done that, uh, there's a mixer between the church, the synagogue, and the mosque. And then third, we do community projects together. Simple things like clean up a soccer field or work in an after-school program together or serve meals at a nursing home. It, it doesn't have to be complicated. Uh, my wife, she does a thing. It's called embrace. And sometimes she'll call me. She says, go watch a movie till late. I've got all these Muslim Jewish women over here. The hijabs are off. I'll call you when you can come home. You know, you don't have to do the most significant things that I do. It's not the big things, John. It's the little things. It's the retreat with 30 pastors and imams and rabbis. Those are the most significant things. But because those work so well and they impact the community, I get invited to speak at those big events to tell those stories. That, that's what happens. That's why I've spoke at the World Economic Forum. I speak at tons of stuff, the White House, you name it. We, we go in and we just tell the stories. It's not, I'm smart, download my lectures. You know, it's, it's not like that. It's how do you build in relationship? So who's the most diverse person you work with? And you don't have to agree with them. See, we think if I'm friends with that person, that means I agree with them. No, it doesn't. Jesus was at the woman at the well. He didn't agree with their lifestyle. With the Pharisees, he didn't agree with them, but he loved them and he gave them the time of the day to talk to them, to build relationships. If you were to just focus on the most diverse person you're around and just saying, you know what, I don't agree with that person, but I may be the closest thing that there is to a Christian loving that person. I'm, I'm going to be the one that loves them. Man, you have no idea how far it goes. And, and here's what else I discovered. I grew up in Baptist culture where we share the gospel one time. And if you share your faith with someone, they don't accept Christ, you dust your feet, feet and you forget about them. 
that's really not what that verse was talking about. You know what I've discovered? Many people in the younger days, when I was leading people to the Lord, it was about all speed. Hurry up and get them to faith in Christ. And I still think that's fine. But the people that come to faith in Christ that I work with now, it's not unusual for it to take months or years. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we, we, as long as people have breath in them, we need to love them and love them for who they are. And if they feel like the only reason you're loving them is just to convert them, they're not going to listen to you. But if they know you care about them, but it also changes your heart. Because for me, it makes me pray a lot more for people I know that don't know Jesus, but I want them to. And so, uh, yeah, Cha it's changed me. So people are going to listen to this and they're going to be like, I got to hear more about what this guy and what he, what's he, you know, what he's up to and what's he about. I, I know that you have your own podcast called Bold Love, which is very exciting. Tell folks where they can find it and kind of what that podcast is about. So it's easy to find. Uh, you can go to any uh, of podcast platforms. It's there. Or you can go to the glocal.net website, G-L-O-C-A-L, glocal.net website or the mfnn.org website. Uh, that stands for Multi-Faith Neighbors Network, mfnn.org. And it'll show where the podcast is. We're on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, those are the websites. Uh, the podcast is all over those. Uh, you can listen. You can find out what we do. And if you're listening uh, and you wanted uh, to have a chapter in your city, uh, you feel free to reach out to us. We'll respond. Nice. Well, I appreciate you, Pastor Bob, coming on the show, and uh, I'll put links to all that stuff into the description of the podcast so people can go check it out. I want to encourage people to go check it out. If you uh, are living in a city and you don't get out much, I think Bob's going to be a guy that can encourage you and entice you to get uncomfortable in your life and get to know folks that you may not otherwise even agree with. And so, Bob, I appreciate you challenging everybody today to uh, love folks that you may not otherwise have even thought about loving. I think that's a cool concept. So thanks so much for joining us today. We wish you nothing but success here from Mustard, Alaska. And until next time, I'm John Quick from somewhere in Alaska. <laughs>